Welcome to the Screen Time Podcast with Rokan and Richard Roper. I'm Richard Roper. Rokan's off this week. He'll be rejoining us next week. In the meantime, please check out our vast library of podcasts, and I hope you enjoyed this one. I'm really looking forward to chat with you guys today about the year 2002. Crazily enough, it's been 20 years since these movies came out. 2002 sounds so recent to me, but if you're 30 years old, you're like, dude, I was 10 in 2002. I'm calling this all movies that came out in the summer of 2002. Now, some of them actually came out in late spring, but for movie purposes, anything that gets around late April, early May, all the way to Labor Day, we consider the summer movie season. I mean, the movie comes out September 10th. It's technically still the summer, but we don't think of it that way, right? Summer movie season, late April, early May. It used to kick off Memorial Day. Now, a lot of times, the first big summer movie is like the last weekend in April. And there was an incredible cornucopia, if you will, a myriad of films that came out in 2002. People talk about, you know, great years for movies. What was the greatest year for movies? Was it 1939? Was it 1994? I'm not saying 2002 is the greatest year for movies, but the summer of 2002 was pretty damn badass. So let's get into some of the movies that came out in 2002. And we're going to kick it off with Spider-Man. Not everyone is meant to make a difference, but for me... The choice to live an ordinary life is no longer an option. He saved my life twice and I've never even seen his face. Now, you got to remember, it feels like the Marvel Universe and the Sony Universe and the DC Universe and all these universities have been around forever. But and we did have, you know, the Batman movies in the late 80s through the 90s. But the superhero movie was not considered to be viable, big budget, commercially you know, bankable cinema so much 20 years ago. And this was one of the first big ones. This was, of course, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, directed by Sam Raimi, uh, had a great screenplay by David Kep, who's a very serious, you know, established, esteemed screenwriter. And this is the one where, of course, you know, he had to get the origin story. So Peter Parker and Tobey Maguire, not always my favorite actor, and I didn't love what he did in the sequels, but he was really good in the original here and had a great love story with Kirsten Dunst. And then that, you know, terrific supporting cast, including uh, Willem Dafoe, James Franco, And Cliff Robertson, who, of course, uttered the immoral line, with great power comes great responsibility. It it had some, you know, really cool special effects for the time, but also just a, you know, a terrific cast and a really strong story. And I I do like the superhero movies sometimes that are just in one city and grounded, literally, and not all about, you know, some invading figure from a galaxy far far away who's going to destroy our planet and we've had a lot of great movies about that but i like sometimes when they're a little more self-contained you know you've got peter parker and spider-man and new york city and he's fighting crime and it's you know all sometimes kind of small time crime and then he gets involved you know with the green goblin and uh you know as as i mentioned that terrific love interest with uh in love story with kirsten dunce as mj mary jane watson Really terrific. Uh, it was interesting, too. I remember when the movie came out. Again, it came out in the spring of 2002. Um, they had started running ads the previous summer, you know, because they did know this was going to be a big thing. Posters and things like that. Some of the ad work actually contained uh, images of the Twin Towers, uh, which obviously they had to scrap after you know, the horrific tragedy of 9-11 in 2001. 
and remarket the movie. You could go online and see some of the stuff just out of curiosity. Uh, there were a ton of movies that had Twin Towers imagery or scenes filmed near the Twin Towers right around then that were either delayed or in a couple of cases never came out because it just, you know, especially because I think there was a, a wacky comedy. Obviously, it just would be horrific to see those images on the screen. So Spider-Man you know, worked around that and became a huge hit. Uh, it was actually the first film, I believe, to pass $100 million in a single weekend, uh, which is still a huge number when a movie does that. And imagine, you know, uh, 20 years ago. And it also had almost uh, universally great reviews. It's about 90% of Rotten Tomatoes. So uh, that was the kickoff to the summer of 2002. You okay? No, I went down like an old lady. I really hurt my knee. Come on up and get it off, no? Come on. Anyone we can sue? There was this nice guy that helped me, though. Is he good looking? I sent him a bottle of wine. Cheap wine. Before you go, take your book. Souvenir. Be happy for this moment. This moment. This moment is your life. Is your life. I just wanted to call you and thank you, and I wanted to send you a bottle of... Come and see me. I'll make you some coffee. One of my favorite movies of the year came out in May of 2002. It was called Unfaithful. If you haven't seen this one, check it out. I love these kind of uh, lurid murder mysteries that came out. A lot of them, we got a lot of these in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Unfaithful was directed by Adrian Lyne. Now, Adrian Lyne kind of established a whole new type of film, uh, the slick and sexy, hard R stories like Flashdance, Nine and a Half Weeks, Fatal Attraction and Indecent Proposal. Those all came out in the 80s and 90s, and then he had taken a long break, and then he came back with the erotic thriller Unfaithful, starring Richard Gere and Diane Lane. Uh, let's take a listen to a clip here. Now, the setup here is Richard Gere and Diane Lane are this married couple, very comfortable financially, romantically, a uh, beautiful house in the country, but there's a little bit of excitement missing from the marriage. Here's Richard Gere and Diane Lane in Unfaithful. What happened, Edward? What did you do? Did you hurt him? Huh? Edward? You did, didn't you? Tell me what you did. You tell me what you did. You lied to me over and over and over. Edward, please. No, you don't talk to me now. I gave everything for this family. And what did you do? You threw it all away. Then things get complicated because Diane Lane goes into the city. She meets Olivier Martinez, the obligatory handsome guy with the giant loft. I said giant loft. That's where he lives. And they embark on this steamy affair. And Richard Gere eventually finds out. And then murder is afoot. Uh, this film did really, really well. Diane Lane in particular got great, great reviews and was even nominated for a Golden Globe and an Oscar. She won a lot of film critics awards. Don't want to give anything away here if you haven't seen this movie, other than to say it has a great ending that makes for great conversation afterward about what is actually happening in the ending. I have my theories. I think you would have yours as well, but I don't want to say anything about it. We'll talk about it maybe somewhere down the line. I thought I, I talked to Ro about this. I thought it'd be fun one day to do a pod. I know Kevin Smith has done this and a lot of other guys, but love to do a podcast where we talk about the endings of stuff and just give, you know, assuming that you're going to be tuning in to listen and engage about movies that you've seen. And I think, you know, this would be one where I'd love to talk about the ending, but check it out. Unfaithful came out in May of 2002. Also a May release was Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. 
We're just noting that because it was a major movie. I don't think it was a particularly solid entry. This was that kind of dark period, if you will. Uh, this is the fifth film in the Star Wars film series and the second chronological chapter of the Skywalker saga. I will not let this republic be split in two. My negotiations will not fail. If they do, there aren't enough Jedi to protect the Republic. We're keepers of the peace, not soldiers. You know I don't like it when you do that. Sorry, Master. I forgot you don't like flying. Well, you've lost him. If you'll excuse me. I hate it when he does that. Anakin, don't do anything without first consulting either myself or the Council. You don't need guidance, Anakin. I see you becoming the greatest of all Jedi. And George Lucas came back to direct, and I think the biggest problem with this that most people had was the clunkiness of the dialogue. And it has this kind of clunky, slow-moving feel to it. You know, some people weren't thrilled with Hayden Christensen. I thought he did fine. The cast is great. Ewan McGregor, Natalie Portman, Samuel L. Jackson, of course, Christopher Lee. And then you had some of the original voice actors and, and motion actors, Frank Oz, Anthony Daniels, Kenny Baker. The movie set 10 years after the story, I should say, is set 10 years after the events of The Phantom Menace. You know what happens in all this stuff. It did very well. Obviously, they always do. But when you look at the history of the Star Wars movies, Attack of the Clones, is, I don't think anybody's ever said, you know, that's my favorite. Maybe you do. And if you, if you think so, reach out and tell me why. Also, in May of 2002, Hugh Grant, who was in the, you know, about a 10 to 15 year run of just doing one great rom-com after another, About a Boy. Uh, let's take a listen to a clip from About a Boy. On Pet Rescue Today, the clever stoat keeps everyone on their toes in Somerset. Oi! Oi! What are you doing? Are you? Who am I? Bugger off. That's who I am. Well, piss off. Now, this is based on a novel by Nick Hornby, who wrote the source material for tons of terrific movies. And some of these have been done in British versions and then American versions. Some of them have been redone as series. But he wrote Fever Pitch, High Fidelity, A Long Way Down, and also About a Boy. You know, the setup for this, I don't know if they'd even try it anymore, although they, you know, it makes sense, but it, it has kind of, a, I don't want to say creepy premise, but it's a little dicey. Hugh Grant plays Will Freeman. Now, his name is Freeman because he's a free man. He's a guy who has absolutely no cares in the world. He lives off the royalties uh, from one of his dad's big Christmas hits. So he doesn't really do anything. He makes enough money just off of that. And he wants you know have the bachelor lifestyle. He joins a group called Single Parents Alone Together, SPAT, as a single father. He's hoping to meet single moms. So he makes up a a child. He doesn't have one. Uh, and he eventually then befriends this young boy who's got a mom who unfortunately is dealing with uh, depression, has attempted suicide. So he becomes kind of a paternal figure. And again, kind of a dicey premise, but it plays out really well. And he gets his comeuppance as he deserves, but just really smart and funny and classic Hugh Grant stuff. That came out in May of 2002. Another late May release in 2002. This is a great film. It's called Insomnia. And it got its due at the time and it continues to, you know, be fairly popular. But I think it's kind of under the radar when we talk about Christopher Nolan films. Christopher Nolan, of course, who went on to do the Dark Knight trilogy and so much other great stuff. But he started off doing um more psychological thrillers like Memento, which is a great film, and then Insomnia. They brought him in to solve an unspeakable crime. 
Detective Dormer, it's such an honor to meet you. I'm Detective Ellie Burr. Welcome to Night Mute. What Detective Dormer doesn't know is that murder is only part of the plan. Dormer, killing changes you. It's like awareness. Who am I speaking to? Can't sleep well. He will taunt you. He will torment you. He will get inside your head. Don't worry, Will. You can sleep when you're dead. With a great script by Hilary Seitz. Now, this is a remake of a 1997 Norwegian film, which is also terrific, of the same name. The cast is incredible here. Al Pacino, Robin Williams, Hilary Swank, and in supporting roles, uh, the great Paul Dooley, Martin Donovan, who you might not know the name, but you've seen him in a ton of stuff, Maura Tierney. And the setting is a murder in the town of Nightmute, Alaska, which has that kind of 24-hour sunshine thing, hence the insomnia. And it's really a cool chess game. You know, did Robin Williams' character commit these murders? Is Al Pacino seeing things he thinks he's really seeing? Or is, there, is he going through some stuff? Uh, beautifully done. A big hit, actually. Uh, it was not a huge, expensive movie, even though it had a big stars, but actually made more than $100 million worldwide. Insomnia. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to hear from Ro Khan about Portillo's. And then we come back, we're going to talk about movies that came out in later in the summer of 2002. Portillo's, they are known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients right down to the poppy seed bun. And of course, the legend itself, the chocolate cake. If you are hearing this right now, that means you are alive and you are near a computer. Go to Portillo's.com and check out their entire selection of stuff that you can get anywhere in the United States of America. If you are blessed enough to live near a Portillo's, then you don't have to worry about going online. Just go to the store, go get the hot dogs, go get the Italian beef, go get the salads, the chicken they got. It's all great, but the chocolate cake is the single greatest item of all chocolate cake items in the history of humanity. Am I overstating that? <laughs> I am not. I am not. You go and you find out yourself. Order it online, go to a store, or if you really want to try something totally unique, the cake shake. They take the cake and they smush it <laughs> into a can with the, with, I don't know what else it is. I guess ice cream and some other stuff. And then they put it in the blender. You know how they do that? Where they yeah. take that cannish looking cup and they put it up into the blender. Next thing you know, <laughs> it comes out and they put a cookie on the straw and you're like, oh my God, this oh. is the greatest thing that ever happened. This is a warning to diabetics. It may not be perfect for Good you, Lord. but for everybody else, <laughs> it is the greatest thing you could possibly have. Go to Portillo's.com, find a location near your order online, P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S, Portillo's.com. Okay, welcome back to Screen Time. We're talking about all the great movies that came out in the summer of 2002. And almost every genre was represented. And there was some really great action stuff that came out. June 6, 2002 gave us the Born Identity. Now, since then, we've had, we've given birth to lots of Borns and different people playing Born. He's sort of the modern day Bond, even though we already have a modern day Bond. But this was the kickoff, the Born Identity based on the great novel by Robert Ludlum and the characters he created. 
Doug Lyman, terrific director, uh, was the director and co-producer on this. Tony Gilroy and William Blake Heron wrote a terrific screenplay. Because when you look at these Bourne movies, man, there's a lot of shit going on. And it gets really complicated. And, and you got to kind of stick with it. But it kind of works because you're feeling a lot like the lead character of Jason Bourne, played by Matt Damon, who has psychogenic amnesia. He has the skills you, stop right there. of a dangerous man. But he has no memory. The government's top agent. I can't remember anything that happened before two weeks ago. Amnesia? Yes. Is about to become their number one target. What's in Paris? It's a name. Jason Bourne. Let's see if the Paris police can find him for us. And the only way he can survive... Talk a lot. ...is to find out who he is. I guess you're not home. Monsieur Bourne. I don't recognize any of this. I don't recognize any of this. So he's just trying to discover his identity, even though there's this giant conspiracy going on. People are trying to kill him. And, he, and uh, you know, Matt Damon, we already knew he was a good actor by then. But, you know, I don't think a lot of people saw him as an action star. And he's so good playing an everyman. But then you believe him in the, you know, those really cool hand to hand combat scenes. A great uh, supporting cast. Franca Potente, Chris Cooper, Clive Owen, Brian Cox, Walton Goggins. I mean, just really, really good stuff there. Uh, we then eventually got Born Supremacy, Born Ultimatum, Born Legacy, Jason Bourne, et cetera, et cetera. But the Born Identity is one of the best. Big hit, made over $200 million worldwide, came out in June of 2002. And then just two weeks later, we got Minority Report. From 20th Century Fox. He set me up. He set me up. And DreamWorks Pictures. Who's the victim? I've never heard of him, but I'm supposed to kill him in less than 36 hours. He's coming here to get her. Tom Cruise. I need your help. Keep contained information. I need to know how to get at it. In a Steven Spielberg film. I have to know. I have to find out what happened in my life. You tell me, who was it set this up? I don't know. Minority Report. Another great action film. This one has more of a sci-fi angle. Spielberg is directing, and it's based kind of, I would say loosely based, on a short story by uh, Philip K. Dick, the great legendary science fiction writer who gave us the original uh, material for Blade Runner and many other uh, short stories and works of his that have become films. This is set in the future in the year 2054 with the pre-crime unit. That was the police department that could catch you based on the foreknowledge that you're going to commit a crime. And you had those great precogs. Remember that? They were the precogs who could see all these things. Samantha Morton was amazing as the precog. Uh, Agatha, I believe, was her character. Great stuff, and the, and the legendary Max von Sydow as the pre-crime director. So you have the, the film noir element, you have the action stuff, you have the sci-fi stuff, you have the existential questions, and you've got Steven Spielberg directing. And it's interesting because, you know, sometimes when you see movies from 20 or 30 years ago that are set in the future, they're still reading newspapers or, you know, doing old tech stuff. But tech here, the futuristic tech, is actually still pretty cool. No surprise with Spielberg directing. Uh, the following month, we saw the release of a great film. I just recently rewatched this. I hadn't seen it in probably at least a decade. Road to Perdition. A man of honor always keeps his word. Michael, tomorrow when they find out we're gone, they're going to come after us. I have to protect you now. I'd like to apologize, especially to you, Paul. You would like to apologize? Sons are put on this earth to trouble their fathers. Natural law. You got to take him now. And there is only one guarantee. None of us will see heaven. Michael could. 
This was uh, based on a graphic novel by Max Allen Collins. One of Tom Hanks' best, I think, underappreciated roles a little bit uh, with Paul Newman in one of his final uh, performances, Jude Law and Daniel Craig. This movie takes place during the Great Depression and uh, Tom Hanks plays a guy who's kind of an enforcer for the local mob boss uh, who's played by Paul Newman. But then he finds himself on the run with his son as he is now becoming the target while he's trying to seek his own revenge, his own vengeance. Filming took place all around my hometown of Chicago, and it's, oh man, the cinematography in this film is absolutely gorgeous. Conrad L. Hall actually passed away uh, shortly after making the film and won the Posthumous Academy Award for Best Cinematography. And it, it's visually, it's just a stunning film, great story, uh, road to perdition. And, you know, a lot of times we see that serious movies don't get summer releases. This was a, a heavy film. Uh, and got five Oscar nominations and well-deserved. And then a few weeks later, from the sublime to the ridiculous, we got Austin Powers in Goldmember. Let's take a listen. This summer, I am a sexy beast. Secrets will be revealed. Lower the globe. Lower the globe. Ow! Ow! I'm okay. I'm okay. Release the meteor. Oh, no way! Raise bomb! <laughs> One of our best agents has been kidnapped. It's your father. An evil pact. Who has my father? The aptly named Goldmember. Austin Powers in Goldmember. <laughs> Opens July 26th. The third Austin Powers movie, and by this point, not only was this a parody of James Bond movies, but they actually had a movie within the movie with Tom Cruise and Gwyneth Paltrow and Kevin Spacey and Danny DeVito and John Travolta playing the roles that were played by the other actors in the actual Golden Member. Uh, really funny stuff. Tell you a quick uh, little anecdote about Austin Powers in Golden Member. The original screenplay that Mike Myers came up with, the story, included a cameo that was going to be done by the late, great Roger Ebert and myself. We were actually written into the script. A uh, very funny scene where there was going to be a big chase sequence, kind of like a reminiscence of what they did in uh, Mel Brooks famously did, you know, a million years ago, where all of a sudden the movie becomes acknowledging that it's a movie. So they were going to have a chase coming through the set of Ebert and Roper, and then we were going to comment on the movie and say, we've seen it all before, and it's the third installment. And the third installment in trilogies is almost always the weakest. And it's probably time for Austin Powers to hang it up. And he was going to react to us reviewing the movie. And for a bunch of different reasons, it never quite came together. And they rewrote it to have the Osbournes, who at the time were big reality stars, commenting on the movie. I think we would have made for an even better cameo. But as I said, it was logistics and timing and things like that. And bringing the whole production to Chicago or were they going to build the set? We just weren't able to do it. But uh, that was Goldmember came out July 26th. Uh, in the last podcast, we talked about a little bit about Jordan Peele's Nope, which I think is one of the best movies of the year. And I, I mentioned that it has a little bit, just a little bit reminiscent of Signs, uh, the M. Night Shyamalan film, which came out in August of 2002. What can make geometric shapes the size of a football field? What kind of machine can bend a stock of corn over without breaking it? It is the 18th reported crop sign in that country in the last 72 hours. I'm a little scared. All this stuff on TV. It's happening. Don't be afraid. It's like War of the Worlds. Believe it's going to pass. Don't be afraid. They're in the house. Here it comes. Don't be afraid. 
this, of course, I love this film. It's kind of polarizing. Some people thought, okay, it's nowhere near Unbreakable or The Sixth Sense, and that may be the case, but I still think it, it, it's a terrific story. Uh, Mel Gibson playing this, you know, fallen priest, basically an Episcopalian priest who's lost his faith after his wife was killed in a tragic accident. He's, on, he's living on this farm, and uh, Joaquin Phoenix is his, uh, is his brother, and Roy Culkin and Abigail Breslin are the two little kids, and then we may or may not have some aliens uh, dropping in and all those crop circles and everything. And it, it's got a, I, you know, I love M. Night Shyamalan's writing. You know, so occasionally he kind of goes off here or there, but I still think he's a brilliant writer. And he famously would come up with these great endings that we didn't see coming a mile away. And Science definitely has one of those. That came out August 2nd. All these movies came out between late April and Labor Day of 2002. And finally, August 21st, one hour photo. Let's take a listen. The photo guy at the one-hour place? We really don't know that much about him, you know? Hi, Mrs. Yorkin. Can I get that address again? Yes, it's... 326 Serrano Terrace. You're a very lucky man, Mr. Yorkin. You have a wonderful family. And if you don't mind my saying so, a very beautiful house, too. I'm sorry? According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word snapshot was originally a hunting term. Now, we mentioned Insomnia came out earlier that summer, and Robin Williams with another very dark, understated, unsettling performance here in one hour photo. Now, this is interesting because we just talked about how Minority Report, you know, the technology still looks pretty cool and everything. One hour photo is very much of its time. And even then, it was almost a stretch because here's, you know, the setup is that Robin Williams plays a guy named Cy, Cy the photo guy, and he works at a one-hour photo at a big box store. I think they call it Safe Mart, but, you know, it's like Target or, or Walmart. Uh, and that was a big deal in the 90s and I guess the early 2000s still, the one-hour photo. Because back in the day, you'd drop off your film and then you'd get a call that it was your pictures from the wedding or whatever, the vacation. You know, a week later would be ready. And the one-hour photo was, oh my gosh, you can drop off a roll of film? And an hour later, pick it up because they had the development and all that stuff right there on site. And uh, Cy kind of has this creepy obsession with the customers, the regulars, including in particular this one family who are always dropping off photos to the point where uh, Connie Nielsen's character, like she knows him a little bit, Cy the photo guy. And he kind of imagines that their family is his family. He develops doubles so he can have all the pictures at home. And then he gets really deeply and darkly involved with the family and stalks them. And this is another one where you think it's going to go in one direction. It goes in a different direction. Uh, Mark Romanek wrote and directed this. And I thought it was just an absolutely brilliant piece of work. One of the best movies of 2002. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, one hour photo. That's going to wrap it up for this edition of Screen Time. I'm Richard Roper. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with all new stuff. And my partner, Rokan, will be with us again. And once again, thanks for listening.